This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, Alberta's Minister of Health joins us to talk about yesterday's announcement to try and improve ambulance response times in Alberta. What about AI, artificial intelligence, and your privacy? Ships already sailed. Is it too late? We'll speak with Ritesh Kotak. And when we talk about meetings, nobody seems to like them. So why do we do them all the time? Well, the healthcare system in Alberta, as we know, like in many places uh, across the country and in fact around the world, is under a lot of pressure. It's just not doing what we need it to do and what we expect it to do. Um, nonetheless, we're here in Alberta, so let's focus on Alberta. And the issues well documented. We've talked about them a lot. Um, and it's the stated commitment of our Premier to fix things and to fix things fast, an overhaul, right? And we've seen some action just within the last couple of days on at least two or three fronts that I can think of. So to get into that, what's happening and what we might see in the future, we're going to chat now with the province's health Minister Jason Copping. Uh, Minister Copping, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Shay. Why don't we start um, with yesterday's announcement surrounding EMS. Um, to, to back up a little bit, the province accepting and working to implement like more than 50 recommendations that came out of two reports. What were those reports examining specifically, and what are they recommending? Yeah, well, well thanks. The, so the two reports, um, the first is from the uh, APEC, which is a, an advisory committee uh, that was appointed uh, last January and, and asked the advisory committee, and it, it included not only, um, you know, AHS and, and Alberta Health, but, you know, uh, the uh, College of Paramedics, uh, post-secondary institutions that do training, um, representatives from, you know, municipalities, uh, also representatives, because we, as you know, it's not only AHS provides paramedic service to our province, um, but a, no, a number of uh, not-for-profit, uh, so, you know, municipalities provide service and, and for-profit. Uh, and uh, and this, I asked, tasked this group to look at the challenges that we're facing in our, our EMS system, particularly, you know, the increase we've had, you know, since uh, summer of 2021, uh, 30% of uh, of call volume and and quite frankly the uh, reduction in response times and the amount of time uh, that paramedics are sitting at hospitals so uh, this they they came forward with 53 recommendations in total 10 came out last spring uh, and because I charged the uh, the panel saying you know what are the quick hits and what can we implement quickly so those 10 um, that there were, uh, came out uh, in the spring we, we already uh, hit hit the ground running with that um, they provided another uh, 43 for uh, recommendations for um, that came out in the fall and uh, and what we released yesterday uh, is the the entire report uh, and also our plan forward for the recommendation. So that's that's the first report. Uh, the second report that stemmed from our consolidation of dispatch uh, in the in the province, as you may recall, uh, you know we had four municipalities uh, that were not as part of a centralized dispatch system, uh, which included uh, included Calgary, and uh, we put that into the. Uh, uh, our centralized dispatch system. Some constraints were raised, so we, we did an independent review, and we, we hired a, a consultant to actually talk with all the parties and look at the data. Uh, and, and long story short, what they found 
uh, in that uh, in that report is that the dispatch system itself um, did not uh, necessarily significantly impact the the amount of times in terms of of uh, of um, you know ambulances getting on on the scene, uh, but they did find, and, and this is the issue that we, we saw, um, and this is what we asked the the first report and the people that look at um, that there that you know increased call volumes, uh, not having sufficient resources mm-hmm. to be able to uh, get 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 people the ambulances exactly when they needed it as, as quickly as they needed it, uh, and they came forward with a uh, a number of recommendations, you know, uh, forty rec- over forty recommendations to say, okay, here's how you address that issue. Plus, we need to do a better job of integrating dispatch uh, with local fire, uh, local fire and police at the highest level. Uh, and there was a ton of overlap between the, these two reports. So, so that's why when we announced yesterday, we, we released both reports at the same time. We, we announced them saying, look, we know we need to fix the problem in terms of quicker response times. Uh, and uh, and also the uh, you know reducing the, the wait time that ambulances are in, in, the, in the hospital and and improve a dispatch uh, and so we announced them both tomorrow. Um, my colleague, parliamentary uh, secretary for EMS, uh, R.J. Sigurdsson, is going to take lead in terms of implementation. And, and just one last comment: we're not standing still. Like uh, we also announced yesterday. Uh, in this front, because we, we we've received the reports, um, you know, AHS had a ten-point plan. Um, this has been made one of the key priorities for our new official administrator, Dr. John Cowell, mm-hmm. at uh, at AHS. So we're acting already. And so we talked about, you know, yesterday, uh, some stuff that's stemming from the report, an additional uh, twenty ambulances in Calgary and Edmonton for peak hours with staff, just want to be crystal clear about that, uh, with staff that coming out in the uh, this spring. Uh, we also uh, announced our approach to using um, uh, other service providers for inter-facility transfers, also transfers between hospitals, so that like today, right now, we have our highest level ambulances, highest trained staff, moving people between. Um, we may not, we don't necessarily need that level of, mm. of, uh, of expertise. So by bringing in other service providers, we can do that. Uh, and then also focusing on, on how do we you know, provide supports to paramedics so that they can treat on scene and don't have to bring them in, 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 into the hospital as well. So uh, these are some of the recommendations that were, were coming out of the reports. We're already acting on them because, as you said in your intro, um, the, the Premier has promised that we're going to act and act quickly, uh, and we're, we're doing that. Um, Minister, a couple of things you mentioned, like the, the new ambulances are coming, um, and, you know, immediately the, the union representing EMS workers said, well, I mean, we had tens of thousands of shifts that went unfilled last year. You can put as many new trucks on the road as you want. You say with staff. Where does the staff come from? I mean, EMS says that's the issue we're dealing with here. We just don't have enough bodies to actually even fill the shifts we have now, let alone new ones. Yeah, so I, I appreciate the, the the challenge of staff, and as you indicated, that this is a challenge that not only facing in Alberta, but quite frankly across the country, um, we have more staff now than we've ever had before. We've actually, you know, net uh, hired uh, additional 341 paramedics across the province, and and we're continuing to hire. So right now, AHS is uh, you know out there doing uh, recruitment, uh, not only across the country, but in places like Australia, for example, uh, using our immigration system, uh, where they have a surplus of paramedics. In addition, uh, we are also um, training more. Uh, you know, as part of Budget 2022, uh, my colleague uh, Minister Nicolaitis announced uh, funding for. Uh, uh, more paramedic seats 
across the entire province. So we, we fully recognize that, that staffing is going to be a challenge. But we're also making, you know, it's it, we come back to the APAC report. You know, that's one of the things that, that I asked them to do and they come back with recommendations is, is how do we retain staff uh, and then how do we recruit staff? And, and two key issues is, is one, scheduling. Uh, so the report, and we're already moving on this as part of our 10-point plan, uh, is in terms of the uh, 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 scheduling uh, with uh, with you know in terms of flex time and core time that you know that didn't, doesn't necessarily work. People are on duty far too long, so we're addressing that issue. Mental health supports uh, for paramedics, and then and then a big thing is, and this is what we heard, and you know, and my hats off to the entire committee, uh, the co-chairs, you know, R.J. Sigurdsson, my colleague, and uh, M.L.A. Tracy Allard as well. They you know did surveys of well over. You know, a thousand um, responses from EMS workers, and and one of the one of the things that they heard is that one of the challenges for EMS workers is the amount of time that they're waiting in the hospital. They're not out in the community mm-hmm. helping people, which is what they what what they they uh, signed up to do. Uh, many times, the shifts are far too long in the hospitals, and we're working that issue right now. So I appreciate. Uh, you know, uh, Mike's comment that it's a challenge, but we are focusing on not only uh, getting more supplies, so this is between immigration uh, and, and training, uh, but also making the job better for the people on the ground so we reduce the turnover and to get the people that we need. So but the first step is is to actually create the jobs, fund the jobs, get the equipment, uh, and then continue uh, on working on supply. Um, Minister, you mentioned something there. That every time we talk about this on the air, this is what people focus on, is the fact that we have EMS workers continuing to wait for hours on end to dispatch their patients once they get them to the hospital. I know there's some there's some preliminary talks about how to address that, change that, which it seems like should be an easy fix, and I know it's not, but you know, to, to a layman, it seems like there should be some kind of answer. What's being done now? There's, there's an assessment process that's going to happen where maybe an EMT doesn't have to sit there and, and essentially babysit someone in a, in a waiting room hallway? Yeah, so so that's it's one of the things, we, and, and thanks for raising that, we also talked about yesterday and uh, and, it's our, and putting into effect uh, right now, which is for lower acuity patients um, that, you know, after there's a, a detailed assessment, uh, there's a handoff to the hospital, uh, then, you know, um, th- they can sit there and wait uh, with, you know, oversight from the hospital, and then the paramedics can just turn, right. turn and leave, right, and then get back out on the road. So that's going to help. And then the other issue is, and this is, you know, I think important for, you know, your listeners is this is about flow. You know, the, the paramedics EMS system is, you know, the call, that's the start, but then they move from there into the emergency department, emergency department, uh, often into the, uh, uh, you know, inpatient in the hospital, uh, and then from there, you know, certainly, uh, you know, may need to move, you know, elsewhere in terms of ultimate level of care. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're, t- uh, and, and Dr. Cowell is, is, is part of uh, his mandate, is attacking the issues of flow through the entire system. So it's not only, you know, being able to respond and get paramedics back on the road for the next call. It's increasing resources uh, and improving triage within emergency department and building capacity. We're doing that. Same with inpatient rooms, but also on uh, alternate levels of care. Uh, so, for example, last week we had an announcement, uh, Jasper Place Wellness Center, uh, the creation of uh, 36 new transitional beds for individuals who are homeless. Uh, and, you know, typically beforehand, they would stay, you know, they, they'd get the treatment in the emergency department, but they, they'd stay in yeah. a bed because there was no place to go, right? Or, you know, after a certain point of time that they're, that they're, they're, uh, um, they don't necessarily need to be there, but, you know, they're, they're well, then they'd go back out in the street and then come back again, you know, because that's not a healthy place for them to be and back into the emergency department. So, so this announcement was creating 
where, how can we solve that problem for two things? One is to improve the health outcomes uh, for some of the most vulnerable in our, in our society. Uh, and, then, and then secondly is improve the entire flow throughout our, our, our emergency department system. So the, this bridge healing transaction, uh, transitional accommodation program sets up a, a, a transitional bed, allows the, uh, the Jasper Place Wellness Center to do their great work of finding uh, individuals uh, with uh, more permanent uh, lodging, um, wraparound services, social workers, you know, how do we find a job? If mental health and addictions, that's the issue. How do we deal with that? Uh, and then get them on their way so they don't come back into the system again to supporting them. And then we have the bed again for the next person to be able to do that. So all of these things are doing throughout the uh, uh uh, throughout our entire system, but it's it's not one thing. Uh, sadly, there is no silver bullet. It's going to be a lot of little things that we do to improve the system. But it's 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 how you know the work that we announced today, and then and also with the uh, um, uh, the new beds with the Jasper Place Wellness Center. All of these things will help and reduce the uh, uh, EMS response times, the EMS wait times. And, uh, and emergency department wait times as well. And like you said, there's dozens and dozens of things that came out of this report. Some of them are already underway. Some are being started right away. I mean, how you know, doing this quickly is sort of is that the focus? I, I guess, or trying to make some some things happen fast. So it's a combination of both. So short, medium, and long term. So this is uh, you know, as you indicated, uh, they're over uh, ninety plus recommendations. Now, some of them are overlapped, right? So, so things that came out of the uh, dispatch report are uh, uh, overlapped very much with what came out of the the APAC report. So, you know, we are implementing right now things that we're, we can uh, put in place quickly. Um, you know, we have put aside additional funding this year, like over $60 million for enhancing EMS capacity so that things are funding. But we also know that, you know, medium to longer term, we need a sustainable solution. And some of these problems have been, been uh, appear uh, overnight and we're not going to solve overnight. So um, uh, we've tasked my colleague, um, Parliamentary Secretary Sigurdsson, with, um, you know, let's implement right now and stuff on the way uh, and get it and, and quickly to solve it. But also we need to make sure that it's sustainable for the long time, that we have the resources that we can attract and retain the people uh, to work in the jobs and continue to drive down the metrics in terms of response times and, and emergency department wait times. Minister, I, I appreciate you being with us. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I do thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for the time, and, and have a great day. YouTube. That's Jason Copping, Minister of Health. week, Madison Square Garden in New York City under all kinds of fire. Why? Because they're using facial recognition. Um, and it's also being reported that the CEO, James Dolan, is using it to target some of his enemies and get them kicked out of the world's most famous arena. And Radio City Music Hall, also owned by MSG. So this case getting a lot of attention, but MSG is certainly not alone when it comes to facial recognition. Um, not even close. Um, and in addition to facial recognition, ChatGPT, you've probably heard about that. That's the uh, artificial intelligence software where you can say, hey, write me an essay on this, and it will. Um, that's raising some big questions, too, about the risk that this brings. But I mean, hey, AI is the future, and it just gets more and more pervasive, but what does this say about our privacy? I mean, what are the risks? What are we doing to protect ourselves? Spoiler alert, not much. Let's find out. We're going to chat now with Ritesh Kotek, who's a cybersecurity analyst based in Toronto. Uh, Ritesh, thanks for being here. I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's start with this facial recognition story. And I think the Madison Square Garden one is just a good jumping off point because it shows a lot of us that this facial recognition technology and its use is far more common than we know, right? We may not even be aware of everywhere it's being used. 
Yeah, and it's kind of it, it's layered on top of existing systems. So you can think of closed circuit television, uh, essentially uh, security cameras. Well, are they just recording movement, or are they layering um, AI on top of that to do facial recognition? And it's important to know that there's two elements of this. The first one is uh, what we call a one-to-one facial recognition. Um, uh, facial recognition, and the second is a one-to-end. So what does that mean? A one-to-one is you have a picture, so you got a picture of Ritesh, and you're like, if you find Ritesh at Madison Square Garden, do, uh, alert, 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 do not let him in. Right. So that's, that's, that's the first way. The second one, which is actually a lot more scarier, and we saw this kind of with Clearview AI, uh, which was the talk of the town facial recognition software being used by law enforcement, back in, um, I would say, a year a year or two ago, and that was a one-to-N. In other words, here's a picture of somebody. Go out and identify them based on the database that you have. And it seems like a lot of organizations are using one-to-one facial recognition technology, um, but how are they using it? What are their policies? How long are they storing it for? And what happens when they get it wrong? Because AI does get these things wrong. And what me- protection mechanisms are there for society and right now it's the wild west it is it really is and i'm wondering you know because we we saw some announcements recently microsoft amazon a lot of the really really big companies have decided some of them are going to abandon facial recognition technology altogether others are going to scale back their use of it why is that happening i mean are we seeing more and more lawsuits i mean i I have a hard time believing tech giants are having a, a come to jesus moment realizing it may be a bad thing to do that doesn't seem to happen very often so is there some sort of risk that they're facing why are they sort of changing their position a bit yeah, so I don't know if it's if it's so much around we're scrapping it, or it, I think it's more around we're going to hit pause um, because a lot of money has been has been invested already into it, and there are some benefits, uh, especially when we get into identity and and uh, the future of, of verification. But when it gets weaponized against populations, that's when it becomes an issue, and I think it has become an issue because just as we talked about, it's the Wild West, and when you start getting false readings, and there's been a lot of talk around bias around these algorithms as as well, especially with facial recognition, so if the test data that trains the AI is, is a homogenous group of individuals, then we've seen the accuracy levels, especially amongst marginalized communities and racialized communities, be extremely inaccurate and that becomes problematic when you're using it to identify potential um, uh, potential individuals that have been involved in let's say criminal activity so by the, the use by the state so because of all these questions lack of regulation and these huge question mark around is bias actually baked into these algorithms into facial recognition a lot of companies just hit pause and said okay let's get this right and then we'll move forward i don't think it's the end of it well, it's good to hear at least they're having those kind of conversations. What about um, our rights as people? I mean, like if I, if you went to a basketball game at Madison Square Garden, I'm sure thousands of people have walked in there without even knowing that facial recognition is being used and they're submitting themselves to it. I mean, in lots of these things, we at least have some kind of terms of service. We at least know that this is happening. Are we entitled to know that this kind of technology is being deployed against us? I personally think so. Um, that's that's my take on it. I think be open and transparent with individuals on on what exactly you're collecting and what you're what you're doing. Don't put in legalese and fine print on the back of the ticket. Um, as people are entering, uh, and we see this right, we we see an element of this. You'll walk into you'll walk into a shopping mall or a store or into an arena, and it says uh, you know security cameras in use or smile. You may be recorded. Well, I think we need to go further. If you are recording that's one element but if you're recording and doing analysis and you have different layers of ai on it 
then you should be you, you should be disclosing that type of that type of information now when it comes to your privacy um again it it breaks down into privacy in public places privacy in private places it it, it becomes extremely complex and, and in some cases even convoluted but i always say default to openness be transparent tell people when yeah. you're using certain type of technology and let people choose yeah, exactly. I mean, th- that that would be wonderful. The other one I wanted to ask you about this Chat GPT. Hearing lots about it, I have I haven't used it. I've seen some, you know, some of the product that it's put out. I guess if that's what we're calling it. But just explain what that is. It's an AI platform, but is is it just a writing platform? I mean, what, what how does it be? How is it used? Okay, so the best way to think about this is you go on you go on to a popular search engine, Google, Bing, whatever, and you search, um, you know, uh, tell me the number one radio show in uh, in Alberta, and it will it will give you your radio show. But what if you said write uh, and you typed into that search engine, write me a poem about the number one radio show in Alberta, and it actually writes you a poem, or write me a story, or tell me the top ten cybersecurity and privacy tips related to ChatGPT, and it will write it for you. So what this falls under is generative AI. It generates stuff for you. And we're not just seeing this with text. Yes, ChatGPT is with text. We're also seeing this now with videos, with images. Um, So it's kind of somebody there, uh, you give it a command, and it does it for you to the point where it even starts generating code. And I've tested it out myself and I said write me HTML code for a website that sells consulting services and it went through and wrote me that code it wasn't the best code mm-hmm. but it's only going to get it's only going to get better and there is a lot of positives to it but again with any type of emerging technology it's really important we get it right we get past the cool factor the wow factor and say, okay, what are the challenges? And clearly this technology is going to be something that's going to be used. But what are those challenges and what do we need to do today to mitigate against those risks of tomorrow? What are the risks? When we're talking about this chat GPT, I've heard lots of, I know schools have said, hey, listen, you can't use it. We don't want your term paper being written by this software platform. I get that. But uh, there's other risks I've heard about in terms of misinformation, hate speech, these kinds of things creeping in. So what are the risks around this chat GPT? Well, I think you, you mentioned some of the big the the big the big risks right off the bat, and it's who is actually tra- uh, training training the AI. Are the are these elements actually accurate? And, and like to me, a big risk would be you can also ask it to write a legal document, for example, or here are my symptoms and what is uh, um, you know diagnose me. So the t- because it has the world's information, it could say you probably have this or. Here's a sample contract or a sample non-disclosure agreement. Well, these are regulated industries. There's a reason why we have yeah. doctors and why we have doctors and uh, why we have lawyers. Um, if something goes if something goes wrong, they're they're insured. Um, you can call them. There's processes in place. But when you start getting this type of technology, um, that is extremely. Um, in some cases, you know, I even found some of the stuff to be uh, better. Um, especially uh, some of the documents that I was writing than what I could p- personally do. That is when it becomes becomes scary when people start taking it as gospel without challenging it. And I think that is the biggest societal risk: is are we actually going to how are we going to validate the accuracy of the information that it that it spits out? And what are so what are we going to do to fix that problem? 
that to me is the biggest single biggest risk there's other risks privacy risks as well it collects all the data on you um it, it, all these searches are recorded why because it they want to make themselves uh, like the ai better um and it learns that's why they ask you to rate the results with a thumbs up or a thumbs down um they look at what follow-up questions you may ask so yes that information is logged um but to me, the biggest risk is the verification of that data. So, you know, Ritesh, every time we talk, and, you know, we're talking about two things here where we're playing catch-up, right, and pushing pause to reassess. Like, we never, we're never out in front of actually anticipating the risks and the concerns and making sure those are dealt with. So is there a way? I mean, I mean, this is just the way that it goes with chat GPT, with facial recognition. Now we're playing catch-up. Is there a way that it's ever going to be completely safe? So we don't always have to play catch-up if we have a framework. And I think that... Um, clearly, the technology is going to outpace, uh, outpace the law. It's going to outpace a lot of our, our processes. I, I get that. I'm not naive to that. Um, and neither, I think, are, are individuals. Um, we're, I'll be probably on the show in the next few weeks, and we're going to be talking about the latest and greatest in tech that we would have never predicted today. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't have a framework of technology and how we as society embrace technology. My thing, whenever I talk to individuals, clients, governments, whomever, is I always tell them, I say, have a framework that when you're before you deploy new technology, this is what you think about. Yeah. What are the ethical implications? What are the legal implications? And what are the privacy implications? And anytime you build out technology, you need to think about these things right from the onset. They cannot be an afterthought. They need to be baked in at the design, the security, the privacy, the ethics, the legality. Um, you shouldn't do it just because you can do it. And I think if we use that framework and, and add a hint of common sense to it, um, we will be okay on the way we develop, implement, and leverage emerging technology. But if we don't do that or have those conversations and we think about these things, uh, oh, here's a great piece of tech, now let's have the ethical conversations yeah. or the privacy conversations, uh, we're always going to play catch-up. It's too late, exactly, yeah. Ritesh, great conversation as always. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. That's Ritesh Kotek, a cybersecurity analyst who is based in Toronto. And I think that's the problem. But, I mean, I don't know I don't know how you can possibly get in front of this tech, right? I mean, it hasn't happened. Uh, you can't anticipate everything that may eventually become something that you should have dealt with beforehand because you didn't even know about it beforehand. So it's tough. It's tough. And it, it moves so quickly. It adapts so fast. Uh, it, it's just like, you know, the ground shifts under your feet and who knows where you are. So I don't know how you be proactive. But it's a serious topic and one that I think a lot of people will relate to. I've mentioned here on the show before many times that uh, I hate meetings. I just I hate meetings. And almost everybody that I speak to also hates meetings. Now, to be painfully precise, that's not all meetings, okay? I'm not saying I have some regular meetings that I, I actually look forward to because they're really important to what I do, right? Like um, every morning... Uh, at 7.50, the team jumps on uh, our virtual platform thing called Teams and has a quick meeting. This is what we're doing today. This is what we're looking at. This might be on the horizon for tomorrow. Or the next. We, we have literally a five or a 10-minute conversation. Everybody's on the same page. Off we go. I love that. There's nothing wrong with that. I have a check-in with the boss every week or two. Great. Brief, to the point, off we go. Um, the ones that I think people really get upset by are the ones that we just do. Right. Like uh, you just have these regular recurring meetings and there's not a lot of thought into whether or not you even need them. I've had jobs before where we had a meeting after every show, 
every single show, even if there was nothing to talk about. We we got together for a meeting afterwards, and it's just it's craziness. You've just done a, a four-hour show, and now we're going to sit down and talk about it when there's really nothing that needs to be addressed? No, let's just scrap that. So um, some companies are starting to take a look at that. For example, Shopify, which is one of our country's big, big tech companies, has said, we're not doing that anymore. All of those recurring meetings that are on your calendar, they're gone now. We're not going to have those anymore. We're going to be a little more conscious about our meetings and how we do them, why we do them, be a little more analytical as to whether or not we even need to be doing them. And I think that's something, that's a great conversation that all workplaces should have. Now, there are good meetings, there are bad meetings. How do you make sure you don't fall into the trap of a bunch of bad meetings, wasting time every day? Let's find out. We're going to chat with Jane Porter, who is the founder of Bridge Building Group. She's a certified professional facilitator, which she explains as someone who focuses on giving meetings clear purpose and helping people gather well. Jane, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Hi, thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. So this is right in your wheelhouse. I mean, your job actually is built around this very idea, right? Making meetings worthwhile. Totally, totally. I think there's there's a danger here when we're like, I hate meetings. Yeah. And people are like, I hate meetings. And then, you know, people, are, especially at Shopify, they're working at home. And they used to have kind of this great culture and being able to meet people um, in person. And then they're at home by themselves, and now they're saying no meetings. And I think the, the, the issue here is meetings matter. Meetings with your colleagues matter, and you're hitting the nail on the head there. It's just we have to do it better. Right, we have exactly. to stop having bad meetings. So when you hear of Shopify and other companies that have said the same sort of a thing, um, and the plan to just scrap those recurring thoughtless meetings, what, what, what do you think about that? Is, that? is that a good plan, just getting rid of thousands of meetings a year the way Shopify is done? <laughs> My, my my partner actually used to work at Shopify. They do this frequently. And so I, I actually am I'm fine in a way with, with a company saying, you know what, we're going to start from scratch because we have too many meetings that are accumulating and somebody needs to say, you know, stop with this meeting madness and then make sure that when you are putting them back on your calendar that you're doing it in a way that makes sense, that you're doing it with intention. And now I think, again, this, the, the, the crux here is are you giving people the skill set to do it better or are you just kind of frustrating people, <laughs> right. you know, wiping up their calendar and be like, whoa, whoa, actually, that one was important. <laughs> you know, so I think, I think they, they just need to give the skill set uh, or offer some, some better insight on that. You mentioned the fact that things have changed so much and, you know, a lot of the Shopify workers, if not all of them, are working from home now where they used to be there in a more collaborative setting. So how much has that changed, the whole meeting culture and the mindset around meetings? The fact that we've got people all over the, all over the place now in some workplaces. Yeah, I think in like it's it's a double-edged sword. In some ways, we need more of that because you know, believe it or not, we are human, and as social creatures, we need to work together with our colleagues um, to, um, to do that. And so, we need to do that online. I think where you know we used to just say, "Hey, can I grab a coffee with you?" or bump into someone in the hall and have something, you know, a decision made. In five seconds, yeah. we're now doing check-ins for 15 minutes. 
like I think we we have to try and rethink the way that we do it now that we are often in a virtual setting. Yeah, and I, I think there's nobody listening that won't be familiar yeah. with this. You walk out of a meeting and a coworker sidles up to you and says, boy, that could have been handled in an email. We didn't need a meeting. And w- there are some very unnecessary meetings. So like you're saying, yeah. let's not say meetings are awful. We can't ever do meetings again. Let's just make them better. How do we start? How do we recognize the good from the bad when it comes to meetings? The, the number one issue here is intention. Like, what is the purpose? And so when I'm, facil- when I'm asked to facilitate a meeting, I spent most of my time with a client beforehand really drilling into this. Like, what is the intent? All too often, I, you know, someone says, here's the meeting, and they put down five topics. And you're like, but what are you doing with those topics? Like, mm-hmm. give me a verb. <laughs> give me, like, <laughs> are you, give me an actual action item, like, are you trying to decide something? Are you just talking about it? Like, what do you want out of that? So really driving into the intention on each aspect of the meeting is is absolutely critical. And often at that point, if you're just asking, if you're just presenting information, if you are just asking for quick feedback, maybe you don't need a meeting. Right. And, and you're not looking for engagement across people, like, Maybe you could do that in another way. Um, but often, you know, I I think we need to spend more time on intention. We need to spend more time on who should be there. If you have too many people in a meeting and a lot of people don't know why they're there, that's up to the meeting organizer to better decide who should be there. And sometimes you can give a role to people, like especially junior staff who are just invited. Maybe give them a role so that they feel a little bit more important while they're sitting um, in the room. And then often you have to think about a process. Like you want, what what are you trying to do? Well, think a little bit about, what there there's a huge toolbox out there about what you can do in meetings and depending on your intention selecting a process in advance is critical um but if i can say one thing the most important part is that when you're in the meeting is to be present with yeah. the people who are there if you see that everyone's checking out like think about that and then adjust, you know, to to suit what's happening in real time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because we've all been in meetings where you got somebody who's just yammering about uh, what they did that weekend or whatever the case may be. And you've got 13 things that you need to do in the other room, but you're tied up in this crazy meeting and you just want to shout like, hey, get to the point. I'm busy here. So don't waste people's time as part of it too, right? Yes, absolutely. Like time is so precious. You know, people's time is so precious. So who you have there and how you get through to the objective, I think, is is critical. But but also, you know, we're not robots. And so we also need some time to check in and to say, you know, how we're doing. Um, and, And that part is still an important aspect. It's just having someone, you know, whether it's a facilitator or the chair, to say, okay, that was, you know, great to hear how everyone's doing. Now let's move on. Let's get going, yeah. (laughs) What about saying to the employees, listen, I'm going to give you the option here. I don't know what's going on in your world. I don't know if you've got 15 projects that need to be done in the next hour and you don't have time to sit here for a half an hour. It's okay for you to say, you know what? I got to skip this one. I got other things on the go. What about empowering the employees to say, you know what? I don't want it to be difficult. I'm not trying to be a problem, but I got other things going on. I, I think that, you know, yeah, I think we have to trust that people know their own work. And, you know, if, especially if you, it depends, on, again, on, you know, everyone has different work cultures, but I think being open and honest to saying, you know, I'm really busy or what do you really need? Can I, you know, can I just put down my two cents because I know what the topic is mm-hmm. in advance and can I pass that to you? Like, there are different ways, I think, that we can get work done. 
but the idea that everyone's just going to sit on the by themselves, you know, adding comments to a Google Doc <laughs> at the same time, like maybe that's not effective either. No, I think you're absolutely right. So, I mean, decide who needs to be there, what the process is going to be, what you're hoping to accomplish, and then stick to task. I guess it's that simple, right? Yeah, and be be present. Like often, if if you start, if you say, you know what, we don't have all the information we need for this meeting. What do we need to do now? so that we can come together, say, next week. Like, what do we need to bring to the table next week so we can do this effectively? Yeah, good stuff. Jane, thank you. Yeah, that makes all that makes good sense to me. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jane. That is Jane Porter, who is the founder of Bridge Building Group, certified professional facilitator, which she explains is someone who focuses on giving meetings a clear purpose and helping people gather well. Nothing she's saying there should come as a, oh my goodness, I never thought of that. It's all pretty common sense stuff, right? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.